Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This week, a 23rd lawsuit was filed against Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. And in footnote two at the bottom of page two, there was a comment that that struck me when I saw it. And I follow this case, I think, as closely as anyone out there. And when I read that line, I thought, wait a minute, this is not as obvious as Tony Busby, the lawyer for the plaintiff, would think. And here is the language from the footnote. Of course, we now know that Deshaun Watson offered each plaintiff $100,000 to settle their cases, but not all would accept that amount due to the aggressive non-disclosure agreement that Watson's team proposed. That was the language that made me say, am I missing something here? Do I just forget this? Is this? Of course, we now know. We don't know. We'd never seen that. It had never been reported, and I went and checked last night. The only thing that had ever been reported, the Daily Beast reported that one of the 22 plaintiffs at one point was offered $100,000. That is different from saying they all were offered $100,000 with an aggressive nondisclosure agreement that some of them decided not to sign. And that is a complete 180 from earlier in the year, 2021, when it was Tony Busby who represents the 22 plaintiffs who wanted the nondisclosure agreement and Rusty Harden who represents Deshaun Watson saying it all needs to be public because Busby, as Harden has said, didn't want people to know how little his clients got. Well, as it turns out, and this all happened in the context of the trade that didn't happen to Miami, the Dolphins wanted the cases settled. He was going to pay each of them $100,000. 18 were ready to go. Four of them said no. And I don't know whether it was the NDA or the amount. And at the end of the day, Watson decided he wasn't going to settle some if he couldn't settle all, although in hindsight, settling any hindsight, foresight, any site, current site, settle these cases if you can. But uh, this NDA and and Watson's camp would say, well, well, Deshaun didn't want the NDA. The Dolphins did. Well, the Dolphins aren't parties to this lawsuit. They don't come to the table and say to Tony Busby, we want your clients to sign an NDA. They say to Deshaun Watson, if we are going to trade for you. You have to get these cases settled with an NDA. 
And Watson says, okay, I'll do it. So even if it wasn't Watson's idea, if he's doing it to facilitate a trade to the Dolphins, he's the one who's asking for it. His team asked for the NDA. They call it aggressive. And look, every NDA is aggressive. The idea is you can't talk to anybody. You can't tell anybody what you got. They all, I've, I've, been, I've been the lawyer on both sides of the NDA. All you can say is the matter has been resolved. You can't talk about the amount. You can't even say it's been settled with a cash payment. All you say is it's been resolved, period. So uh, it didn't work. It didn't get it done. But that was news. That was one of those, you know, I think Tony Busby knew damn well what he was doing, dropping that little bomb in the footnote uh, for the purposes of someone in the media catching it and writing about it. But that's the bottom line. And different people are going to interpret different things based upon the fact that Watson was, was willing to pay hundred grand to each of these 22 individuals. And there's going to be a lot of people who look at that and say, why would he have offered $100,000? If he didn't do something, he shouldn't have done. But that's not that's not all that, that's not a reliable conclusion. I won't support that logic. Sometimes it makes good business sense to purchase peace, treat it as a transaction, in order to get past this and move forward. He wanted to play last year for the Dolphins, so this was part of the price to pay to go play for the Dolphins. Mike, you know when Deshaun Watson signed this guaranteed contract, five years, $230 million with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, I basically said at the time, and I continue to say it, I think it is one of the worst transactions I've ever seen an NFL owner make. And it isn't that Deshaun Watson as a football player isn't worth $230 million over a five-year period. There's very little to do with it. It is signing a player who has 22 swords of Damocles hanging over his head. And this week, that became a 23rd sword of Damocles hanging over his head because obviously now another woman has joined the parade of civil lawsuits against Deshaun Watson with... I would say some harrowing accusations about sexual uh, misconduct by Deshaun Watson. And, and I said at the time, and this, you know, I wrote a a, a damning story uh, at the top of my column when the Browns did this, I thought it was an absolute total disgrace. And I continue to think so. But what I, what I said at the time is that This is basically going to be the distraction that keeps on distracting. And what has happened now over the last couple of weeks with Deshaun Watson? I'll tell you what has happened. HBO on uh, Real Sports has two women who come out and talk about uh, their their very negative experiences with Watson as uh, professional massage therapists. Then this week, There's even more, a 23rd woman uh, joining the civil suits. Then last night with what you said, that he's already offered to all of the women $100,000 to make this go away. So if you've done nothing wrong whatsoever, and I mean nothing, and then you offer $2.2 million to... Uh, people who've accused you of doing something wrong. Does that lead to public opinion then thinking that you've done nothing wrong? 
No, it does not. It leads to public opinion thinking that, yes, we just want to make this go away and go on with the career. And probably that was the smart thing for him to do, to make that offer. But, you know, it's hard to make an offer like that when you are absolutely, totally without any fault. And that is the thing. This is not going away. And it's going to continue to be a black eye and a black cloud over the Cleveland Browns until all of these civil cases are adjudicated and until he finishes serving whatever sanction the league hands down. And Watson would say that the money was offered for one reason only, so he could get the trade that he wanted, so he could try to play football, even though the Dolphins were under the impression, I've heard multiple times, that it was going to be a six-game suspension of Deshaun Watson if he settled those cases. But, you know, in hindsight, if he'd have been traded last year to the Dolphins, he wouldn't have gotten a $230 million fully guaranteed contract on the way through the door. He actually has made more money by waiting. Not that the problem is any better for him, because I think – the sooner this all goes away, the better off he's going to be. And I've said from March of 2021, and I said it in March of 2022 when he was traded, these cases need to be resolved. You need to find a way to let the individuals believe they've gotten their justice. And this is the way the civil justice system works. It is a transaction. It is a payment of money that compensates someone for whatever it was that they endured that they shouldn't have had to endure, that they believe that they endured, whether you agree with it or not, that's how you make it right. He should have made it right right out of the gates. He should have made it right right after he was traded to the Browns, and now this continues to linger to the point where Browns fans get dragged into it. And some Browns fans don't like the fact that he's on the team. Other Browns fans are caught up in this tribalism. They're going to shout fake news. They were shouting old news last night. That was, their, that was their reaction to this. This is old news. First of all, no, it's not. And second of all, is that the best you got? Is that really the best you got? You're going to try to shout me down because you think it's old news when it's not old news? But, hey, that's what fans do. They got thrust into this because Watson didn't settle the cases before he became a member of the Browns. And now, Peter, he is in full-fledged, full-blown, I'm going to fight these mode and let me just tell everybody how this works how here's how this is going to work because i handled civil cases for 20 years almost each one of these cases is going to go to trial and in each one of these cases the plaintiff is going to get on the witness stand and the plaintiff is going to tell her story about what deshaun watson did and deshaun watson is going to get on the witness stand and he's going to deny it And there's going to be other evidence that may or may not get in, depending upon the rules of evidence and the arguments made by the parties about the other claims being made against Deshaun Watson or other things that he has done, other things that he has said that would tend to maybe push the needle a little bit more toward the plaintiff in each given case. There'll be be many hearings where there are fights over what can and can't be used from other cases in each of these individual cases as they go to trial. But 23 of them. Soon to be 24, with 23, soon to be 24 different juries. And I know how these cases go. Look, we get an idea of how the legal system is based on TV and movies. Every one of these cases is a coin flip, at best, for Deshaun Watson. Good luck flipping a coin 23 times and having it come up your way every time. Either way, 
I, I doubt that he loses every one of these, but I would not bet that he's going to win every one of them 23 times. And how long is it going to take to process 23 trials, Peter? This is going to be hanging over the Browns all of this year, all of next year, and into 2024. And, and what, is he, what the hell does the NFL even begin to do about this? So, you know, I know he's got every right to defend himself, but there's an intersection between defending yourself and moving forward with your life. And when you've got 23, soon to be 24 of these cases, all of which are going to be tried separately, that are hanging over your life, and six months of the year is out of the picture for any of these trials to happen because you're playing football, or at least you think you're playing football. You know, that'd be the best thing. Hey, Peter, the best thing for him, now that I just kind of thought of this, just suspend him for the whole year and let him focus on these cases and just get these damn cases behind him. Just try try the cases during football. It's probably too late to make that happen. But just sit out the whole year and, and folk between now and next year at this time, focus exclusively on getting these 23 cases behind you, whether you try them, settle them, whatever. That should be the full focus at this point is making these end. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I, I think one of the things that you've written on this, and I forget when you wrote it uh, a week or so ago, is maybe the most sensible thing for the league and this uh, independent referee in this case, the independent adjudicator in this case, former federal judge Sue L. Robinson in Delaware, maybe the best thing to do, quite honestly, is to split the baby and to say, look, we know you're getting suspended for some number of games. We just don't have finality on the civil cases right now. So we're going to suspend you for four games this year, and we're going to hold it in abeyance and make a further judgment on how much, if any more, we will suspend you in 23 or 24. And what you said a minute ago that is, I don't want to even say frightening to consider, but I am borderline positive that Jimmy Haslam, D. Haslam, uh, Andrew Barry, Kevin Stefanski, when they sat down and thought of worst case scenarios, they must have thought, okay, well, you know, at the absolute latest, a year from now, we'll be finishing with this case. Sometime in the 2023 off season, you know, April or May, maybe June, this will end. And then we will have our quarterback in full for the last four years of this contract, okay? And now what you just said before, when you said that this is going to last all of this year, all of next year, and into 2024, unless there is a global settlement in these 23 cases, how frightening must that be to a team that now has to decide, can you imagine making this decision at the end of this season after you finish eight and nine uh, or, or, and again, I, I, whatever. Do we have to do better than Jacoby Brissett as a backup quarterback? Because now we're not sure at all what's going to happen next year. I mean, this, this is such a quagmire for the Cleveland Browns and, you know, beyond Deshaun Watson 
And, and, and Mike, you have also said this, and I think you're right. He needs somebody. Deshaun Watson needs somebody to basically tell him the truth. He needs somebody close to him to say, hey, listen, you know, you've got to do everything in your power right now to admit some fault, to do whatever, to fall on whatever sword, you know, to stop saying I've never disrespected a woman or whatever his quote was about it. You got to get real because there's a world out there that doesn't believe you. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest why the world doesn't believe you. So, I, I, I mean, I don't even know the point of what I'm saying other than to say. No, you're absolutely right. Deshaun you're absolutely Watson, right because it was a point I was going to make. Yeah. Yeah, well, Deshaun Watson needs somebody to tell him the truth. And the Cleveland Browns are in for a, a, a 24-month nightmare from today, uh, I, I think is fair to say. I think I've said this before in the context of this case. One of the biggest challenges when you practice law in a litigation setting is to separate what you say in court or how you conduct the actual effort to defend or push the rights of your client. Separate that from what you say to your client back in the confines of your office or your conference room where you have the tough talk right. with your client about the weaknesses of the case because the client gets caught up. The client loves it. The client loves having someone fight for them. And they hear everything you say in court, and they get all excited, and they get hardened in their position. That's when you got to take them back and say, hang on there, Jimmy. I was doing what I had to do there. Now's where we have the conversation about why we need to think about settling the case and where you may have some responsibility here and why it may not be as good as I was trying to paint it as because that's where I'm your advocate. Now I'm not your advocate. I am your friend. I am your advisor. I am your counselor. I am telling you what needs to be done. And Peter, either Deshaun Watson hasn't gotten that kind of tough love, very blunt advice, or he's gotten it and he's consistently ignoring it because he's 26 years old. I know what I would say to Deshaun Watson if I had uh, had the opportunity to sit down with him in a room for a half hour to an hour. I know exactly what I would say. I know what questions I would ask, and I know what points I would make. And the bottom line is this. If you are going to go from person to person to person to person to get massages, and you're going to admit that at least three of those massages became sexual encounters post-massage, you have to understand how that looks, especially when 23 women are now saying, you went too far. You did, and, and there's no yes. one there to vouch for you. And if this is true, and there's always little nuggets you can point to. There was one allegation that, that really doesn't seem important in the latest lawsuit, but it's critical. The woman who sued him this week said that he specifically wanted no one else in the room. Okay, that's one thing that I would, I would grab onto that with Deshaun Watson, and I would say, Deshaun, is this true? Just tell me right now. But you and me in the room, is it true that you said to her, just the two of you? Well, yeah, it is. Okay, okay, look, you got to understand, it's over at that point. You've created a situation where you got two versions of what happened in that room because there's not a third person there to break the tie. So we got to accept what she's saying. We got to understand what she's saying, and we have to realize we're going to go to court and she's going to say it. 
we may disagree, but she's going to say it. And this isn't going away until she gets her chance to get her day in court and say it. And that's why we need to resolve this case right now for a fair amount. And that's why And you could do I'd work through every case with him. Why we need to resolve these cases. And also the other side of it, Peter, the point you mentioned, the Browns. Now, look, the organization is getting what it deserves here. The fans don't deserve this. The fans get mad at me for saying these things. Hey, I'm your advocate here. You don't deserve to have this dark cloud hanging over your team for two or maybe three seasons. All because the Browns had to have Deshaun Watson and Deshaun Watson has to have his 23 days in court. This is not a burden that the Browns fans should have to carry. And they're the ones that I feel bad about in all of this other than whatever it is that happened and wherever justice transpires with the 23 individuals. Obviously, I feel bad for them if their claims are accurate and truthful. And I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just saying, hey, we need to be fair and balanced here. But the Browns fans, they're just minding their own business, trying to get themselves thinking their team's going to be any good. And now they've got to carry this around indefinitely, this notion that their quarterback may or may not have done these horrible things and may or may not be available to play football. You know, the one thing that you've talked about in recent weeks and that has come up a lot, Stephanie Epstein of Sports Illustrated has raised this issue, and I think wisely. Does the NFL, even in a tangential matter, have to consider what Major League Baseball did with Trevor Bauer? And a lot of people would say, well, whoa, 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 what Trevor Bauer did you know, has, you know, goes into the violent realm, you know, according to the charges. So it, no one claims with Deshaun Watson that, you know, that he, that he injured, physically injured anybody. Mentally is another matter. But, but be that as it may, where do you come down on that, Mike? Well, I think it's highly relevant because this is all driven by public opinion. The personal conduct policy is a PR tool. 98% of the employers in the country don't care because it's not their business what happens between an employee and the criminal or civil justice system as long as you can show up at work. Now, there are exceptions to that, and there are employers who want to hold against an employee some issue they got into away from work, and I've had to counsel employers, you can't worry about that. That's not your business. It has nothing to do with why you employ the person. But the NFL has made it part of the employment relationship. The NFLPA has allowed it because the public is asked to embrace this product, to pay money to this product. So if there's a person who has done something that the public regards as vile, the NFL needs to have a mechanism for dealing with it. So, so yes, it is relevant. And what the expectations of the public are and how people react to Trevor Bauer and whether or not that's viewed as excessive or not excessive, that all goes into the stew that's going to determine what Roger Goodell thinks the right punishment is. And the one big similarity between Bauer and Watson, even though the facts are different and the Bauer facts are very graphic and disturbing, the one similarity, Peter, is consent and the extent to which consent was violated by the man involved. In Watson's case, it was in the context of a massage how much consent was there to activity, and was it, was it violated? And with Trevor Bauer, it was a different context where there were consensual sexual activities. How much consent to whatever kind of rough actions happened 
was provided and whether and to what extent it was violated. So I think Trevor Bauer is highly relevant to this. And the fact that Rusty Harden would argue it has no relevance whatsoever tells me he's afraid it has relevance because it points to a year at a minimum for Deshaun Watson if the NFL takes the Trevor Bauer case seriously. All right. We must take a break. Courtney, once again, has been very polite in suggesting <laughs> in a half-aspirational, half-resigned way. Break next. Let's break now. Tua responds to the haters, the social media warriors, when PFT Live continues right after this. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You know, for me, it's just zone that out. I mean, we come out to practice, everyone else, Twitter warriors, you know, keyboard warriors, whatever you want to call them. You know, they're not out here practicing with us working hard. So um, I don't know if you guys recorded that last one to Tyreek, but <laughs> I don't know about you, but that looked like money. <laughs> I love that. I love that personality. I like that he's willing to push back a little bit. But, you know, this whole Tua Tagovailoa arm strength thing, it all flows from one thing and one thing only. A video that the Dolphins put on social media. Not somebody at practice. There were no keyboard warriors at practice secretly filming the throws. This was posted by the Dolphins as evidence of some sort of a rocket launched by... And it was. It was a rocket launch straight up in the air, and, and uh, Tyreek Hill had to wait for it to come down. It was underthrown, and it was wobbly, and the Dolphins put it on social media. So don't get mad at us, Tua. Talk to your people on your social media team. They lit this fuse. If they want people to say, wow, look at that arm strength, then they should be putting on social media the kinds of throws that you think are reflective of, how, of what your arm strength is. Period. There are two statistics that I would like to point out. Last year, Tua Tonga-Valoa was 30th in the NFL in, a, in pass attempts that traveled 20 yards or more downfield. In addition, last year, on pass attempts that traveled 20 yards or more downfield, Patrick Mahomes had 36 completions. That's the team that Tyreek Hill was on last year. Hmm. Patrick Mahomes had 36 Miami, Tuatonga-Valoa, had 14. So all of this stuff, whatever is said, and it's one of the reasons why no one ever on June 2nd says anything that's truly meaningful. The only time that it's truly meaningful is on October 2nd. That's when we see what you got. And that's when we see what Mike McDaniel is going to call in his offense in a tight game with the best deep receiver in football on your team. Are you going to call a bunch of deep throws? Are you going to call a bunch of nine routes? Are you going to have to really test the deep middle against teams that might be vulnerable there? So we can say whatever we want. We can listen to this and do whatever we want. None of it matters until we actually see what a team does. That's all. 
Well, and you're absolutely right. And what Tua has done is relevant. You mentioned the statistic about throws more than 20 yards down the field. He was also 30th among qualified passers in average air yards per attempt at 7.13 yards of average air yards in throwing the ball. And, you know, Mike McDaniel will construct an offense that will get the most out of what Tua does. But at some point, you're going to have to make a big throw down the field in a big spot. At some point, you're going to have to do it. Whatever that offense does to operate, at some point, there's going to be a throw that Tua has to make to keep a drive alive. The, the Ryan Fitzpatrick exorcist head, head spinning around throw. At some point, if you're going to have a successful season and you're going to get to the playoffs and you're going to cause damage in January, at some point, Tua Tonga-Vailoa is going to have to deliver with something. Something. And we'll see if, if and when he's able to when the time comes. It's good that he's confident. It's good that the team is rallying around him. But the other thing about Tua this year, there are no excuses. If he can't get it done, he can't say, I don't have great receivers. I don't have great running backs. I don't have an offensive head coach. I don't have great blocking. He's got it all this year. All of the excuses have been pushed away, and we'll see if he can make it happen for the Miami Dolphins. And if he can't, maybe somebody else playing quarterback next year in South Florida, Peter. And look, and that's the way it should be. You know, we've created this business. The NFL has created this business that 9 million people cover the league 12 months a year every day. And so what is there to write and talk about? A pronouncement by Tua Tonga-Valoa that he likes his arm. And so <laughs> if, he said, if he said anything else, then, you know, he's an idiot. Okay, but none of it matters. It simply doesn't matter. It only matters when the game plans start and we can see what Mike McDaniel really does think about his quarterback's deep arm because game plans and production will say it all. Where it does matter, though, is this, Peter. He's clearly aware of it. He's thinking about it. And how will that affect his performance when it's time to go do it? Will he rise to the occasion or will that extra pressure cause him to crumble? That's very relevant. When September and October roll around, how he carries that burden and how he processes that potential stress and tension and awareness of the criticism that will come if he doesn't get it done when the games begin. All right, we need to move forward. When we return, Eric Bieniemy opens up about his mindset despite still not having a head coaching job. More PFT Live right after this. I just got to go get it. I just got to go get it. I'm not seeking any comfort. <laughs> you know, I haven't gotten it for whatever reason. It don't matter. I'm going to keep knocking on that damn door, and I'm going to keep working my ass off to make sure that it happens. So my job this year is to make sure that we take care of the business that needs to be taken care of today to help us to achieve the goal down the road. But then it's time for me when presented, to just go and get the job. In reality, yes, it is tough, but I don't let that keep me from doing what I do. I'm still alive, I'm breathing, and I have an opportunity to work with a championship team. So that's the beauty of it. And so the thing about it, like I said, I don't seek any comfort. I don't want any pity because this is who I am. I'm going to keep pushing, keep knocking, because when it's all said and done with, I know who I am, and I am comfortable with the person that I, I'm, I'm striving to be. Eric Bieniemy, Chiefs offensive coordinator, who continues to wait and wait and wait for a head coaching opportunity. 
You know, it's one of the great mysteries in the NFL. Why hasn't Eric Bieniemy gotten hired? I tried to get to the bottom of it earlier this year. You never quite know if people are telling you the truth. I don't know. I really don't right. know. And one thing I thought was very telling, Peter, he was in Minnesota from 2006 with Brad Childress into 2010 as running backs coach, eventually assistant head coach. And I don't think the Vikings even looked his way. And the Wilfs know him from the time that he was there. Now, maybe the association with Childress is fatal. Childress, the worst coach in team history, not named Les Steckel, frankly. But they, they didn't even consider him. And they know him. They employed him. They issued paychecks to him for five years. I thought that was kind of strange. But I, re- I just don't know what it is and why it is and how it is. But when you look at that Andy Reid coaching tree and that pipeline and the people who have gotten opportunities, some have worked and some haven't, it's just stunning that Eric Bannemi still is waiting. Here's the thing, Mike, that I would, um, that I would tell you that – I sensed a sentiment uh, by some people in the NFL this past year. Uh, Not necessarily all teams that wanted coaches, but I sensed a sentiment that, okay, you know, we've we've really had a few long looks at Eric Biennemi. He's had a lot of interviews. For whatever reason, he hasn't gotten a job. And the effort to increase the number of minority coaches, particularly black coaches in the NFL, just can't focus on one person. We need to have a wider net right now. And that wide net, in my opinion, this coming year is going to start to look at different people. It's already started to look at different people. And I believe this year... Two of the hot minority slash black coordinators are going to be Marcus Brady, the Indianapolis offensive coordinator, and Aaron Glenn, the Detroit defensive coordinator, both of whom at the NFL's accelerator program early last week in Atlanta, where they brought together 60 some odd uh, minority coaches and minority front office people to basically meet the 32 owners and decision makers in the NFL, that two of the people who who I heard came away uh, as having been very impressive there were Marcus Brady and, and Aaron Glenn. And I don't mean to diss in any way Eric Biennemi. He's an excellent candidate, and we're not in the interview, so we don't know. But the only thing I would say is I think it's wrong for the movement if the movement still focuses heavily on one person, Eric Bieniemy, I think you've got to look at 15 minority candidates right now. And he, he should be one of them. But you can't get stuck saying, well, we're gonna, we, we have to bring in Bieniemy." No, you don't have to bring in Bieniemy. You have to bring in the people who you think are going to get the best chance to show for this job. And if one of those be enemy, great. But if it isn't and you think other people are better candidates, bring in the other people. It's hard not to wonder whether at some point the sun just naturally sets on Eric Bannemi's opportunity because no one's going to want yeah. to be the one to hire the guy who's been passed over so many times. 
there's always going to be somebody hotter on the list. As you've mentioned, the names like Marcus Brady and Aaron Glenn, new names emerge who have greater sizzle, who are fresher. And, you know, there's, there's that element to this sport that is inescapable, even though there are laws against age discrimination, too. Eric Bieniemy, wrong side of 50. You find other candidates, regardless of race, regardless of background, who are in their 30s or 40s. Sometimes owners will gravitate in that direction. That dynamic rarely gets discussed, but Bieniemy is going to find himself on the short end of that stick potentially as well. Uh, moving forward. Peter, one other thing, too, to mention. The NFL quietly last week adjusted the windows for interviewing candidates, specifically coaches who are with other teams. They need to have a certain number of days to prepare in advance of an interview, and no interviews, sit-down interviews with coaches who are working for other teams uh, who are in the playoffs until after the wild card round. So, no more interviews being rushed in that first week after the season ends of guys right. who are coaching teams that are in the playoffs. Everything has to wait until after that wild card round, which I, I know that you're a proponent of pushing it all until after the Super Bowl. Tony Dungy is as well. This is at least a step in that direction of slowing it down, giving guys a chance to breathe, giving guys a chance to prepare, and not rushing through it. I'm just going to make, make one point about that. That doesn't mean that if you have a wild card game on Sunday and you know that Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. at the airport hotel three miles from your facility, you're going to have the biggest job interview of your life. Do you honestly think that on Friday when you drive home from the facility that you're not spending three hours on the phone with guys who you want to be on your staff? Do you honestly True. think that on Saturday when you should be resting and you should be taking time focusing solely on your team, you're not focusing solely on your team. You're much more interested and you go home, hey, what do you think of the school system in City X? Where, where would we live? What's happening? I mean... It's wrong. It's just wrong. And I understand it would be unfair to some really bad teams to not have a focus about where your team is going until February 20th, maybe. I get that. I understand. Tough cookies. This entire program should be put off till after the Super Bowl. You know, I, I resisted that, and, and I still think there's a place to do it before we get to the Super Bowl, but it, it's... It's one of the very real factors. It does dilute. And one of the coordinators that was up for a job disputed that this year, Baloney. Every minute you spend preparing for, thinking about doing anything other than getting ready for the next playoff game, that's a minute that is taking you away from what your primary or Mike, or Mike, obligation or Mike, should be. Or, or going to bed at 7.30 one night because you're absolutely, totally exhausted from the work you've put in to prepare for this game. But no, 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 you don't go to bed until 1 o'clock because you're preparing your presentation, you know, for a few days later, or you're calling people to see who can I get to be my coordinators. That That is as big as anything else. On Monday in Football Morning in America, Peter King will debut his list of the most influential people in the NFL. You get a sneak peek next on PFT Live. I have a feeling there's going to be a, a rejoin 
in the not too distant future with Nick Saban striking his pose and Mary Catherine Gallagher. Is Jim Bowe lying when, you say, when he says that uh, that they didn't do anything? I have no problem with Jimbo. I have no problem with Jimbo at all. The body language is great. He says, I have no problem with Jimbo at all. And he digs his fingers into his armpits like the old character from SNL. She would get nervous and do that and then smell her fingertips. <laughs> That's Nick Saban doing his unintentional Mary Catherine Gallagher superstar imitation. Well done, EJ. I knew it was coming. But, and, and apparently... That's kind of a default position for Nick Saban. Not just crossing his arms, but burying his fingers into his armpits like Molly Shannon's classic Mary Catherine Gallagher character. Anyway, Nick, just just cry. If you want to take that defensive posture when you're trying to get people to think that you really don't have a problem with Jimbo Fisher when you know damn well you do, just do that. You don't have to put your fingers up in your armpits anyway. That's, that's Look, the extent of what, any advice uh, I could give Nick Saban. I didn't, I didn't see that clip until just now. But I know this, and I have never taken a college class in Body Language 101. <laughs> but when you see him do something like that, the first thought that goes through your mind is, Nick Saban wants to punch the questioner in the nose, <laughs> and he's got to take three deep breaths so that to make sure he doesn't say anything... That is going to be a clip on ESPN for the next three days. Yeah. And if I was the questioner, I'd say, could you just kick me in the face instead? I really don't want that hand touching me anywhere, even with a punch after it's been buried into your armpit. There it is. All right. So uh, Monday morning, football morning in America, when you wake up, check out Peter's column. I do it every Monday when I wake up. If I wake up in the middle of the night because prostate uh if i wake up at the normal time (laughs) whenever it is i i read football morning in america and if you read it this week when you read it this week you will see peter's list of the 22 most influential people in the nfl of 2022 a very objective analytic math-based list i'm sure which I'm i'm being facetious but what do you factor into this what are the big things you're looking for as you rank one over the other well, Mike, I try to think of, like, for instance, you know, I had, uh, I had Deshaun Watson number three behind Tom Brady at number two on this list until last night about nine o'clock, and I read your item, and, or whatever time you posted your item about, uh, you, you know, the, the, the offer that he had made to everybody, you know, $100,000, and I just said, you know, I wrote, because I've written a lot of the column already, I've written basically that this is the distraction that won't go away, okay? And it just continues. Leak, 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 leak. More and more and more about Deshaun Watson. And it is going to be the black cloud that hangs over the Cleveland Browns for this year. And what I do in a list like this, Mike, is I try to figure out, like, for this coming season... Who are going to be the most important people? And I I make it a mix between the players and then the people off the field. And so what I try to do is figure, like Brian Rollup, you know, the NFL's EVP of media, basically he's got some big jobs this year. They got to figure out what they're going to do with Sunday ticket. 
are we going to be able to get the gold mine after this season of maybe 2.5 billion a year to a place like Apple or somewhere for Sunday ticket? He's also got to figure out what is the NFL going to do with NFL Network and NFL Media. I think the NFL very clearly would like to find a partner, not to own NFL Media, but a partner for partial ownership and then operation of NFL Media. So that is a big deal because it could be it could mean big money and it could also mean an increase in quality at NFL Media. And so that that's the kind of stuff that I try to think about, you know, in thinking about the coming months, who's going to be the most important people, the most impactful people in the league. Roger Goodell is number one on your list. Spoiler alert, but it's right here. And it's one of the ones that you're willing to talk about today. And I know you still have more work to do. Goodell, let me ask you this. How much longer do you really think he's going to do this? Uh, I believe, Mike, he'll do it about four or five more years. I think he's going to sign a short extension uh, beyond, I think his contract expires in 2024. I think he's going to sign a short extension. And I, the one thing I, I was told this week is that he will not do another CBA negotiation. He will not do another a media negotiation, you know, the NFL did a uh, 11 year, whatever, 110 million, $110 billion uh, media deal with all the networks and, and the associated media with it. So I don't see him hanging around that long. My gut feeling is 27, maybe 28 at the outside, 2027, 2028. He's not going to do this as long as Pete Rozelle did it. Pete Rozelle did it for 29 years. But, you know, on Labor Day 2023, he will pass Paul Tagliabue. Uh, And so I think he's definitely going to serve longer than Paul Tagliabue, but not as long as Rozelle. Do you remember how old Rozelle was when he retired? No. But he was already... 63. But you you know what the difference between the two guys is? Pete Rozelle was physically beaten down from that job, and he was a heavy smoker. You know, Roger Goodell doesn't smoke. He's on his elliptical or, or, or bike or, or whatever. I mean, he, he keeps himself in pretty good shape. And I, don't th- I think Pete Rozelle was beaten down by the, by the litigiousness of the job. And he, when he retired, he was an old 63. It's like... I say this about Bill Belichick. When, when I look at Bill Belichick right now, who just turned 70, Bill Belichick looks 55 or 58. He does not look 70. Whereas when George Hallis coached at 70 and 71, I think he retired at 73, he looked like he was 89. And so I think what's happened in the intervening years, Roselle retired in 1989, I think what's happened in the intervening years is there has been an incredible emphasis on taking care of yourself so that you, so that you don't flame out at 63. I mean, very few people are retiring at 63 
and dying a year later because the job is just beating the crap out of them. Yeah, Goodell, 63 years old and no signs of slowing down. And what else would he do? What else? That's the thing. If you're going to retire, what else are you going to That's do? you got to fill that void somehow. All right, we've got to take a break. As promised, draft the best journeyman quarterbacks of all time when PFT Live continues right after this. Ryan Fitzpatrick through the years. My God, he looked younger than Zach Wilson when he was a rookie. There he is as he morphs his way through his 17-year career with nine different teams and a beard that got more and more awesome the older he got. All right, Peter, best journeyman quarterbacks of all time. You're up. Give me Earl Morrill. Okay. Wow. Now, for people who don't remember Earl Morrill, he was a guy who backed up two Hall of Famers, Johnny Unitas and Bob Greasy, played in two Super Bowls, actually, was the basically was the winning quarterback. He relieved Johnny Unitas uh, in the Super Bowl win over Dallas. And so you wonder, can you consider a guy who played so much as a backup quarterback? Well, Earl Morrill was in the NFL for 21 years and started 10 games four times. That's a backup quarterback. So to me, he's got, he's, he, he, he had a long career of being a trusted backup, and when he had to play, he played well. That's a good one. I like that one. Um, the first guy I thought of, and, and look, Ryan Fitzpatrick is more recent, and he really does fit the definition of journeyman because he has journeyed everywhere. It's like that Johnny Cash song. But i got to go Steve DeBerg. To me, that's the quintessential journeyman quarterback who just kept popping up and popping up and was good enough to stick around, bunch of different teams, master of the play-action pass. And by the way, he had a little footnote to his career. He was out of football for four years and came back and played for a season with the Falcons in 1998, the year they went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Broncos. So Steve DeBerg, around football forever, and uh, always was there, always was good enough, but played for a bunch of different teams, Peter. I hate to talk like a man of a certain age, and, and it doesn't give me a lot of pleasure to, get a, to take another old guy, but I just can't stay away from George Blanda. And the reason, and, and for people who don't really know the story of George Blanda, He had one of the most amazing careers in NFL history. His last year in the NFL, he was 48 years old. And though mostly he was a kicker later in his career, just remember, you know, at the the ripe old age of whatever it was, uh, 45, 44, he won a few games for the Oakland Raiders and played great in relief in sort of a magical season for the Raiders. And to me, he defines what about, even though he started a bunch of games early in his career, his last 15 years in the NFL were mostly as a backup quarterback. I'll go Vinny Testaverde as my next one. Another guy from the 80s and 90s, and actually he made it all the way into the first decade of this century. 87 to 2007, a bunch of different teams. A major disappointment is the first overall pick of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers coming out of Miami with the Heisman Trophy. But after he served his time with the Bucs, just like Steve Young did, you go somewhere else and you become a better quarterback. Not that he was ever great, 
but he was always pretty good, found his way out of the field, and up until 2007 when he when he came off the couch to play for the Panthers when they had an injury issue and he was well into his 40s by then, Vinny Testaverde still around and still looks great today. We interviewed him at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. And, you know, but for the gray hair, he looks like he could put the helmet on and go out and play right now. So we got one more round to go, but we got to take a break before we do it. We'll be back to do that on this Friday edition of PFT Live. The all-time great journeyman quarterbacks. We have dipped well into the past with our first two rounds. Round three is upon us. Peter, you are up. Uh, I'm going to take Nick Foles. And I'll take Nick Foles because, not because he had a long career as a backup quarterback. It's because he had an incredible career as a backup quarterback. When he played and won the Super Bowl for the Philadelphia Eagles, and then... He comes in the next year and plays great. Another playoff run for the Eagles. So give me Foles. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a great pick. And he has been on a bunch of different teams. And he never gets it done as a starter. But he is great as a backup. And the Colts have him this year. I'm torn between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh McCown. Let's just go back five minutes and say it's the Ryan Fitzpatrick Memorial Best Journeyman Quarterback of All Time draft. So he gets some recognition. So then I can take Josh McCown, who actually played for 11 teams. Fitzpatrick played for nine. McCown played for 11. And it just felt like he was never going to stop. And he had a great run with the Bears when Jay Cutler was injured. He was the offensive player of the week, shredded the Cowboys defense on a Monday night. And it felt like McCown was finally going to bust through. But he's been around for a long time and uh, uh, still potentially one of these days will be the head coach of the Houston Texans, Peter. Mike, you know, I was going to in my last sentence on the show today, I was going to say, oh, you took the next coach of the Houston Texans. Nice pick. <laughs> All right. Uh, and this is the last we'll see of Peter for a little while. He begins his break next week. Safe travels to you. Thanks, as always, for your contributions. We'll have you back on a Friday very soon. For the rest of you, behave this weekend. Enjoy the summertime. Check us out at PFT. And we'll see you on Monday morning, 7 a.m. Eastern, for a new edition of PFT Live. Have a great weekend. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.